Hey guys, and welcome back to Joko Yo. And y'all, I, this is episode number 81. And as ex- I can't believe it. And as excited as I may be about this being episode number 81, there is hardly anything that gets me as excited as a crossover event. Like when I was a kid and I saw Batman on the Scooby-Doo cartoon, oh man, that was like... That set me up for a year, man. And this, y'all, if you're a fan of the area, oh, heck, even if you're not, crossover events are cool. Everyone thinks so. Like, explain the Avengers otherwise. So, you know what? Let's just get rolling. James Claude Williams was a wealthy and influential landowner around Godwin, North Carolina. Now, Godwin is not in North is is not in Johnston County. It's over in Cumberland County, but hear me out, you'll see. James Claude Williams was a wealthy and influential landowner around Godwin, North Carolina, just just south of Harnett. His son, David Marshall, was was a little bit on the rowdy side. David Marshall, we went by Marsh, was expelled from school in eighth grade um, because, I mean, it, it just could. They just couldn't. And after he was expelled from school in eighth grade, he began work at a blacksmith shop. Well, that wasn't meant to last either, but... It's weird how that happens. Sometimes the, the the most mundane things that you think have no impact on your life whatsoever, that it's like, oh, such a waste of my time. I can tell you from personal experience, y'all, that little bit in a blacksmith shop changed his life and set it on a whole new course. Well, um, it didn't last because, I mean, he's a bit of a handful. And a blacksmith shop is not going to really keep you that entertained, and of course, unless it does, but not in this case. And at the age of 15, he tried to enlist, and he was successful, by the way. He enlisted in the Navy at 15 years old. He claimed he was 17. Now, this kid, at, when he was 15 years old, he was born in 1900. That means in 1915, he joined the, he joined the Navy at 15 years old, so that he could go fight in World War One. Now, he claimed he was 17. Well, that's, again, that didn't last long. It didn't take long for the Navy guys to figure out. The, this, this kid has lied about his age, and you can't enlist 15-year-old kids. Navy learned his, his true age, and he was dismissed from the Navy. Well, that made him mad, and he's a bit of a handful. So... Comes back home at 17 years old, and he enlists at the Blackstone Military Academy in Nottaway, Virginia. Well, that didn't last long. He was again expelled from school because he stole several rifles. He stole rifles and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. What is... <laughs> I mean, that makes me laugh, the dude... Stole rifles and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. And he was discovered by Colonel E.S. Ligon, who was the owner of the academy. Fella got kicked out of school for stealing rifles and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. Yeah, that, that'll pretty much do it. Well, that's at 17. At 18, he, I guess he decided that he needed a new adventure. 
and he decided to get married. 18 years old, he met up with uh, Margaret Cook in 1918, got married. And if you, if I don't know if this lady had any idea what she was getting into. I mean, th- th- this kid was like all over the place. Some people actually claim that this, that this kid was a little bit on the kooky side. I, I can buy it. You'll hear that, that, that happens throughout his entire life. People are like, he's a little bit off. Well, Margaret Cook married him. He's 18 years old. And, but he, he really, really liked to invent stuff. He liked to invent stuff. Well, after he got married, uh, again, he tried. I guess he tried. He got a job. That's nice. He got a job. He also, his, his father had lots of land and, and so on. But, but still, after marriage, he got a job. He, worked, he tried to work on the Atlantic Coast Railroad line, running through Dunn, Benson, up through Forks, Smithfield, Selma, etc. But that didn't last long. Because he soon got fired. Why did he get fired? I guess the dude was bored. He saw a robin flying overhead and tried to shoot it with a handgun. While he's on the job. He got fired. Now, while he's <laughs> while he's doing that, I mean, at least the man's got a backup plan. Ain't much of one, but it's a backup plan. His backup plan was to run moonshine at night. And he was running stills of it. Of, which which he's using skill that he learned in his blacksmith shop days. See, you never know what's going to turn around for you. He he builds stills out of spare metal he finds and builds moonshine stills on his property out in Godwin that his father gave him. Well, I mean, I think he made some good cash with it because, well, I mean, he's got several running. But the other problem with running illegal moonshine stills is, especially when you have more than one, is that you're they're they're bound to eventually get raided, <laughs> because, I mean you're running moonshine stills and 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 that exact thing happened to one of his on the night of January twenty second, nineteen twenty one. Now, his wife did not have any clue. According to what she says, she had no clue that he was involved in moonshining. She did not know that at all. Well, on the night of January 22nd, 1921, Marsh, Williams over here, he's got about five guys that he's hired to, to help him run his moonshine to do his stuff. And one evening, the Cumberland County Sheriff and five deputies seized a still. They went out to the place, snuck up, by the way, cover of night, seized a still and some product, took the big old copper pot, and several of Williams' workers were scared to death, and they, they ran off. Now, as they were loading the stuff from the scene, as they were loading it up into the police cars, they had already put in the big copper pot, the deputies came under fire from somewhere in the woods. Someone was shooting. One shot rang out, and then some more rang out. And several deputies deputies jumped in the car. And Deputy Alfred Jackson Pate had to jump on the sideboard because he was able to ride in the car because they had loaded 
the, the copper pot in the car and it took up too much room. Well, he tried to get in, but Deputy Pate was shot twice and he died, leaving behind a wife and five children. He had a very illustrious career, very involved, well-liked, decorated. Now, the next morning, Marsh Williams was arrested for murder. Understandably so. At the trial, one of the deputies identified Williams as the man who shot at Pate. Williams was charged with first-degree murder with the possibility of a death sentence. Now, Williams' lawyers tried to claim insanity, but, uh, but and there's a small insanity trial, but that ain't going to work out. Williams was also charged with operating a still along with five workers. Now, his, uh, his attorneys withdrew the plea for, immuni- uh, for insanity because uh, the jury said 11 to 1. Yeah, no, he's not. He's not insane. A little bit, a little bit wild, but insane is not it. And so knowing he's not going to make the insanity plea, He's going to enter a plea for second-degree murder, and he pled guilty to operating the still. Well, the judge finds him guilty of all those charges. He received a sentence of 30 years hard labor. Dang. Williams testified that he definitely fired the first shot, but he didn't intend to kill Pate. He wasn't trying to kill nobody. Now... While at Central Prison and at a work camp, Williams was troublesome and he was a lot less than compliant, as you could probably imagine from the personality. Some of his fellow prisoners were certain that the insanity plea should have probably stuck. He was transferred to Caledonia State Prison in Halifax County because they just too troublesome where he was. But he was also very inventive. He would find scrap metal here and there like he did when he was at home and find scrap metal. He would shape them into daggers and he would swipe paper and pencils where he could find them. And he would stay up late nights drawing designs for firearms. He's got the fever, I suppose. And during an inspection, the superintendent, H.T. Peoples, found his drawings and his daggers and you would think instantly, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this fellow's going to, well, H.T. Peoples was deeply impressed. The, the, drawings, the drawings were really intricate and really well thought out. And H.T. Peoples called them nearly genius. So, so as not to just waste talent, I mean, he's, he's a prisoner after all, he did assign Marsh to the machine shop. Makes perfect sense. Where, where Marsh easily repaired the guards' weapons when they broke, and he had enough time to use his spare time to build lathes, tools, and parts for guns out of scrap metal, to even not just fix the guns, but even improve them. Well, that deeply impressed people that much more, and Williams was allowed to build complete weapons, complete, four complete rifles, Eventually coming up with a design that would revolutionize firearms called the short stroke piston and the floating chamber. Now, while in prison, this guy had a completely ridiculous revolutionary idea, two of them, as a matter of fact, on his hands. 
He called the carbine, but he couldn't patent it until he was out of prison. And 30 years is a pretty long time. Now, when news got out that this prisoner in a, in a well, prison had designed a whole new way of, of, of doing this, because he, he tried to file for a patent, that becomes news like immediately. The Colt Patent Firearms Company wrote to Johnston native George Ross Pugh, superintendent of prisons for North Carolina, wanting to interview Williams. Pugh agreed. They had no problem. Interview him if you wish. In the meanwhile, while all this is going down, Williams is in prison, Maggie was left alone. Maggie, his wife, is left alone. He's, she's still very young. And Marshall is pretty much only like 21 years himself. She had to find a way to support herself. Technically, she was married, but functionally, she was single. She also needed a place to live, and she found housing and a job where many young single women found themselves in the time period, teaching elementary school and living in the teacher dormitory, or what they used to call the teacherage, across the road from the school. She found a job, found a place to live, good for them. Her young adult life had been anything but quiet so far. I mean, she's married to this guy. An absolute whirlwind. During a prison visit, Marsh told Margaret that, Maggie, that she should just divorce him for her own sake. Saying He said, it's okay. I got it. It's okay. She refused, said she was going to wait for him. It's fine. But still, though, life promised to be less exciting and a lot quieter and she settled in to teach first grade. Now, Maggie Williams, now a first grade teacher, one of her students in 1928, while her husband was in prison, was, a, was the six-year-old daughter of the cook and housekeeper of the teacherage in school. Her father was the groundskeeper. And if Maggie thought this was going to be a quiet year for her with the first probably she's had since she's been married, well, she was thoroughly mistaken. This particular child was sweet and thoughtful, no doubt, but she was also very busy and really precocious. She was shy around people, but she had an intense curiosity and knew very few boundaries, which is how she put a deep scare in the entire community by climbing to the top of the water tower at six. At another time when she gassed her leg by climbing into a broken window in the school because she left her books. Yeah, Boundaries, not really her thing. And Maggie was her first grade teacher. Definitely a very exciting life. But stop there for a second. Remember that kid. Back to Marshall. His family began a campaign to get his sentence commuted, including the sheriff to, to whom he had surrendered. And Deputy Pate's widow agreed, although she was really angry about it, agreed that if his work could help the country then fine, I also will agree or plead for his commutation. Again, you can't build it without a patent, and you can't get a patent while you're in prison. They pleaded his case, and so on December 16, 1927, when Marsh was 27 years old, his sentence was commuted by Governor Angus McLean from 30 years to a minimum of 10 meaning that he was released in 1929, going home to Cumberland County where Maggie met him after her year with that precocious child. The school was to close in 1931 anyway. It would force that girl's family to relocate, but more on her later. If Maggie thought that they would settle, 
back into the quiet life finally. Well, yeah, that didn't last long. Marshall did spend two years there, I'll give him that much. He perfected his inventions, but once he did perfect them, he decided that, you know, somebody could probably benefit from his designs. He went to Washington to show his designs and his invented guns to the War Department. Now, he didn't just stay busy inventing guns. No, 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 no. no. Marsh was very interested in guns, no doubt about that. But Marsh also, um, by the time he died, had nearly, uh, nearly 50 or 60 different patents in his name. Again, genius or insane, maybe a little bit of both. I mean, he invented, he had patents for a non-sagging clothesline, an electric can opener, and an, even a mousetrap. But still, he received a contract after he showed them their plans. He received a contract um, while he was in Washington, D.C., and their life changed again. Marsh and Maggie uprooted and moved to D.C. While under contract, he patented dozens of other firearms improvements, and his designs were used by Colt and Remington and the U.S. Army and Winchester. And, like, he's getting paid every time, every time one of his designs is picked up. More than 8 million of his signature rifle, the carbine, were sold, and he gained fame and fortune. Man got rich. My own grandfather used a carbine when he fought in the Philippines in World War II. General Douglas MacArthur called this rifle one of the strongest contributing factors in the United States' victory in the Pacific. But he got rich. And Carbine Williams went on to work for several firearms manufacturers and as a consultant for the U.S. Army. He and Maggie bought a big house in New Haven, Connecticut, and Marsh, who decided to go buy carbine by this point, was a big spender. He lived the flashy life. That was, that's, of course, living the flashy life is living the busy life. And it seems that was Maggie's destiny. And just when you think that it couldn't get any busier. Poor Maggie. Because Metro Goldwyn Mayer, MGM, movie-making studio, approached Carbine Williams about doing a movie based on his life. A movie about his life. Oh, my word. Playing Carbine, to, to make it that much bigger, not something like B-movie, playing Carbine, which was approached to, to him, who's going to play him? MGM said no other, none other than Jimmy Stewart. You know, George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life and one of the biggest movie stars there ever was. Yeah, that guy. Carbine agreed that, okay, fine, they can make a movie on my life as long, he had conditions, like really, you have conditions, as long as he could help make the movie, you know, so they got stuff right. So they said yes, and he became a technical director for the movie. And he and Maggie moved again, this time to Hollywood. While the movie was filming, Carbine was there with Maggie at the studio. When someone came into the studio, again, while they were filming, someone walked in through the studio doors, 
And it was that curly-haired first grader, Maggie's, Maggie's student, that climbed the water tower. She came in to watch the filming. She's all grown up by this point, of course. Well, Carbine went up to her, smiled, took her hand, placed something in it, and closed her fingers over it. She opened up her hand to find a small velvet bag with several large diamonds inside of it. Told you it was flashy. Now, surprised, she insisted that she could not dare take those diamonds. And she returned them, even if she appreciated the gesture. After all, after all, this first grader, formerly of Grabtown, Johnston County, North Carolina, well, now she had her own diamonds. And she didn't really need his. She was Ava Gardner. <laughs> now, at, at, there's the crossover. That crossover makes me laugh. Now, he would, he would eventually also be appointed as an honorary deputy sheriff, even though, like, seriously, really? And a second deputy sheriff of Cumberland County after he and Maggie eventually moved back to Godwin, where he worked in his machine shop, which can now be viewed in the North Carolina Museum of History, which is, and it's not very far away where you can see artifacts from Ava Gardner's career. And that's that. Carbine Williams, meet Ava Gardner again. And y'all, that made me happy. Until next time, guys, y'all be good. 